Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy, your source of health information every Wednesday, sponsored by Heinz Entertainment Group. Hope you all are having a great week, no matter what day of the week you're listening to this episode on. The Super Bowl is set, and it's the Eagles versus the Chiefs. Who are you going for, Dr. Randy? I'm going for the Steelers. Nothing has changed over here. My loyalty is tied to the black and gold. Go Steelers. This week's episode is devoted to women's health, in particular, the Well Woman Exam. What is the Well Woman Exam? Well, you'll have to listen to this episode to find out. It's a little tease. This week I have on my friend, Dr. Tierra Aldridge. Dr. Tierra Aldridge is a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist. She received her Bachelor of Arts degree at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, with a major in medicine, health, and society and a minor in sociology. She developed her passion for women's health through a work-study job in undergrad as a research assistant at the Vanderbilt Institute for Medicine and Public Health, looking at risk factors affecting reproductive health and infertility. She received her medical degree from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and completed her residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So, somebody loves Vanderbilt. Today, she practices in the suburbs of Atlanta. On this episode, we will discuss the Well Woman exam that takes place when women go to see their gynecologist and how that differs from an annual physical exam that is done at the primary care office. What are the tests done at a Well Woman exam? What procedures are done? And what she saves for people like myself in primary care that she doesn't want to deal with, that she just lays on me. But that's my job. I hope this will open up women's eyes on what goes on during a well woman exam. So let's go on call with my friend and proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, Dr. Tierra Aldridge. Welcome back healthy people to On Call with Dr. Randy. Today we have on Dr. Tierra Aldridge. She's fresh out of the delivery room. How many babies did you deliver today? You know, at least three or four. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can have all that. Pretty average, fun. pretty average, pretty average. That's just so amazing that on an average day you're delivering three to four babies. Let yeah. one person deliver one baby; they'll be talking about that experience for the rest of their lives. That is, that is actually something to for us to be mindful of. Is that that's that even though we do it every day, all day, that that one experience is that person's experience and to keep that in mind for each individual patient. So, so this is one of my good friends from early on in training us becoming doctors. So I'm glad you're on every person who's on the podcast, who's a physician. I always like to ask them what inspired them or what made them become a doctor. So what made you want to become a physician? Um, it started when I was really, really young, and I just always had a knack for wanting to help people. Um, and then just being interested in the sciences and the human body in general. And then as I got older, um, starting to learn about some of the medical problems of some of my family members, and then having some of my own kind of got me interested even more in medicine. And then once I got to college, um, I what did work study to help pay for school. Um, and my work study job was actually being a research assistant in a women's health study. And so that is what actually got my foot in the door when it came to, to women's health in general. Okay. So that's what kind of inspired you, inspired you to go down the route of becoming an OB-GYN physician? Yep. That is right. That, that um, study looked at kind of risk factors, environmental risk factors 
um, that play a part in reproductive health um, and adverse pregnancy outcomes. So uh, that kind of got my interest going. And of course, once I got to medical school and started and did the rotation, it was the one that I loved. So I knew that was the, the route for me. So sometimes people, they don't know what goes on in the back end, especially during residency and fellowship, what goes into the training to become a specific type of physician. So what went on in the training for you to become an OB-GYN physician? So, of course, you do your four years of undergraduate um, with that being pre-med. Some people, if they don't do pre-med, they'll do a post-bac after college um, just to fulfill the pre-med requirements. Then on to medical school, um, four years there. And then from there, of course, applying into the OBGYN um, residency program, um, which at baseline is another four years if you just want to be a, a generalist, which means practicing both general gynecology and general um, obstetrics. Of course, there are many paths from there that you can um, go into, um, which will call for uh, additional fellowships. Most of the fellowships for OBGYN, like MFM, uh, GYN Oncology, uh, Reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialists are about three years. So could go as much as uh, seven years in training, but at baseline four years, um, which is what I did. So I do a general, um, just a general OBGYN, get to do the full spectrum. So what is the full spectrum? What do you see and what do you do on a regular basis? So for me, I practice both obstetrics, which is uh, kind of the aspect that there deals with um, our pregnant ladies. So taking care of them antepartum. So that's in their prenatal care, early phases of pregnancy throughout the pregnancy, intrapartum, which is their actual labor uh, management delivery, and then postpartum, their postpartum care, which can go up um six to 12 weeks after um, they deliver. And so that's the OB care. And then you have gynecology, which deals with kind of the, the general aspects of uh, women's health outside of pregnancy. Um, so that's where your annual exams come in and the general uh, women pathology that you see, like fibroids or abnormal menstrual cycles, um, even the pre-pregnancy things like preconception counseling uh, and birth control or contraception management, family planning in general. And then you have your, your older women where you're dealing with kind of the postmenopausal or menopausal um, symptoms, uh, sexual health. Um, so kind of a full spectrum. You get to do surgery in there as well when it comes to the GYN side, like hysterectomies or DNCs. Uh, taking out tubes and ovaries, sterilization procedures, et cetera. So a lot of variety. Um, my day-to-day -day is mostly office care. So I'm seeing patients in the office most days of the week um, where I'm seeing anywhere from 25 to 30 patients a day. And that's a mix of both OB and GYN care where I'm seeing women for their prenatal or postpartum visits, as well as women for their annual exams or if they have a GYN problem visit as well. Um, and then sprinkled in there, um, some days I will have surgeries throughout the day as well. So, And then I have my on-call day, which is the day where I'm doing my most of my deliveries. Good Lord, you do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot to keep up with, but it keeps you on your toes. So, and you say you're just a generalist. <laughs> that seems more than just a generalist, right there. So, one of the main reasons that I want to have Dr. Aldrich on my podcast was to talk about the Well Woman Exam, and so that's kind of similar to a physical from my standpoint as a primary care physician, but. There are some things that they do different on the OB-GYN side that I may not do. So we just want to have a conversation and kind of talking about 
what is the difference between those two aspects? So when women come to see you for a well woman exam, what does that all include for them? So, yeah, I definitely think it's important to think of it as a well woman exam. So we want to make sure that the woman is doing well in multiple aspects, not just physically, but we kind of assess the woman as a whole. So looking at their physical health, but also mental health, their social health, um, safety um, kind of goes in assessing safety as well. Um, looking at their reproductive health, um, making sure uh, that whether it's wanting to have kids or wanting to prevent that from happening, or again, our older women, um, making sure that things that they're experience that they may experience um, in that part of life are well controlled as well. And then of course your preventative health care things like your routine screenings, like your breast uh, cancer screening, your cervical cancer screening in regards to pap smears. We also like to re-emphasize a lot of the things that our family medicine and primary care um, providers likely talk to their patients about as well in regards to their colon cancer screenings, um, in regards to healthy diet, exercise, um, smoking cessation, alcohol moderation, those types of things. Okay. So let's just take a case. Let's just say I'm Randisha. I'm coming in to see you. I'm about 32 years old and I'm coming in for my well woman exam. What are some of the initial questions that you would ask me during that visit? Usually I start off by just assessing what is most important for the patient. Like what do they have on their mind that is going on? Um, Because usually that's their main focus. So once we are able to address that, get to know them a little bit, you'll start to understand a lot of things that may play a part in their actual health. So kind of get in their background, understanding what their medical history is. And for us, most importantly, understanding their GYN history. So at 32-year-old, want to know what her menstrual history is. Are her cycles regular? What are they like? Um, Her sexual history in regards to is she sexually active? Is she on birth control? Is she wanting to get pregnant or prevent that from happening? Is she having trouble getting pregnant? Um, Also assessing like uh, STI screening or sexually transmitted infections. Is she wanting screening in that regard? Um, And then as well as uh, going into, like I said, the other things just in regards to general health, is she staying aware of her breast on a regular basis? Any concerns there? And then diet, exercise, and then safety um, as well. And a lot of my patients laugh when I start to ask my safety questions, but I always assess like if they are wearing their seatbelt regularly or if they're a smoker or alcohol um, and then do they feel safe at home so domestic violence is a big thing that we like to assess as well and then their mental health Um, a lot of people come in smiling um, but once you start to ask that question you will see that a lot of women actually break down because we have a strong front um, but at the core a lot of times things are going on that they wouldn't otherwise discuss um, that could be weighing on them. So we like to address kind of the the full the full woman um, when it comes to at least their their reproductive health and then some other things that assess kind of their overall well being. So that's the How history kind of, part, and then we go to the exam. Okay, go to the exam. So yeah, my exam is usually the breast exam, and then pelvic exam. So I leave the heart and lungs to you guys <laughs> and a lot of the head to toe health. Um, but our main focus is breast and pelvic exam. Uh, pelvic exam, of course, at her age would be uh, just looking, feeling for her uterus and ovaries and then doing a pap smear if needed. And then, of course, the swab for ST, STI screening if desired as well. So let's go back to the pap smear. You said if needed. So as we both kind of know, a pap smear for every woman is not needed every year. So what are the kind of guidelines or indications that warrant a pap smear every year versus every three to five years? 
Yeah, so definitely important to understand what a pap smear is screening for. So I think a lot of women um, misconstrue pap smear with pelvic exam. Um, so a lot of women say, I've had a pap smear, but it's really just that they have had a pelvic exam. Also, a lot of women feel like, think that pap smears are screening for a variety of things like ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, um, when pap smears are really just screening for cervical cancer. So, um, and the one thing to keep in mind about cervical cancer is that it is most commonly due to HPV the human papillomavirus, which is a sexually transmitted disease. So understand and understanding your risk where you lay risk wise on that spectrum um, is also important in understanding why the guidelines are what they are. So current guidelines are that we start screenings at 21, regardless of the age of onset of sexual activity. Um, and Part of that is because HPV, again, is sexually transmitted. But the thing to keep in mind is that it's not a virus where once you have it, you have to have it forever. Your body's immune system a lot of times will clear it like many other viruses. Um, and so uh, girls at younger ages most likely will take care of HPV. Their bodies will clear HPV on their own, even if they do have it. And so to prevent from a lot of invasive um, procedures and things from being done, uh, they have changed the guidelines to start screening for it at 21. Um, so 21, regardless of the age of onset, from 21 to 29, those pap smears are every three years, unless you've had an abnormal one. And of course, then we have um, guidelines to follow if you have an abnormal. Um, at the age of 30, um, that changes to every five years if you do a pap smear with an HPV test. And if that test is negative um, and your pap smear is normal, then that screening can be done every five years. And we continue screening until you are 65 years old and stop screenings thereafter if your pap smears have always been normal or at least you've not had a severe pap smear in the last 20 years leading up to that time. We also stop pap smears after you've had a hysterectomy, if your cervix was removed at the time of your hysterectomy, again, if your pap smears had been normal leading up to that or you've not had a severe um, pap smear. If you have had a severe grade pap smear, we continue screenings 20 years past um, your hysterectomy or 20 years past that abnormal pap smear. Let's say you're getting close to the age of 65. I'm glad you mentioned that there is a difference between a pap smear and a pelvic exam. That's very yes. important. Yeah, I mentioned that in one of my episodes that I did maybe a year ago, that sometimes physicians, they're just checking underneath the hood. They're not looking. Right. <laughs> they're just looking at everything underneath the hood. They're not touching anything. But you may have assumed right. that they have done a pap smear. So right. I suggested in that previous episode, if they're checking underneath the hood, ask them what they're doing. Because yes, you may be exactly assuming right. that you're getting a pap smear, but you're not right. getting a pap smear. Right. Yes, yes. And so, that is very important. Um, so let's just say someone has an abnormal pap smear. What's kind of the usual mm -hmm. next process after that? So it depends on their age. If you are 21 to 24, um, the guidelines are if your pap smear is low grade, the changes that are being seen are low grade. That again, the thought is that your body will take care of it. So the guidelines say just repeat your pap smear in one year and see if it's clear. And you would do that for two years in a row. Even if the one in the year is abnormal, you still give your body one more year to try to clear it. If by that second year it's not abnormal, then we move on to the diagnostic test, which is the colposcopy, where you look a little closer, maybe take a biopsy um, and send that tissue off. 25 to... 25 and up, really, if you have an abnormal pap smear, um, then usually the next step is to go ahead and do the colposcopy. The thought is, as you get older, it becomes a little harder for your body to clear that HPV on its own. So we want to make sure that we're catching things before they have a chance to progress. Um, but it is good to know that cervical um, abnormality, cervical cancer in general, is a slow-growing cancer. So that's why a lot of times they give your body a full year to try to clear it or 
before rechecking. Um, again, to minimize a lot of those invasive procedures that would otherwise not be um, need to be done. Um, and that's also why you can space your screenings out um, so far. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you do during a well woman exam is check for STDs. What are some of the mm -hmm. STDs that you check for on a regular basis and which ones that you don't check for? <laughs> so I would say the um, baseline across the board, I, and I ask every woman, regardless, um, if they desire STD screening, regardless of their relationship status, um, regardless of their age, I still ask, you would be surprised how many women actually mm -hmm. still desire STD screening or who may have multiple partners. I make no assumptions. Um, so at baseline, if they say they want S, uh, STI screening, I say, do you want vaginal screening, which would include like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas, or if they want full screening, which would include um, the blood test as well. And the um, blood STDs that we screen for on a routine basis would be HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and syphilis. So that would be the baseline. Um, I know a lot of women also ask for herpes screening. I don't generally recommend doing that by blood. Because that just opens up a, a whole new uh, Pandora's box. <laughs> mm -hmm. So general guidelines in regards to herpes. And I just counseled them after counseling. If they still want the blood test to be done for that, then I will do it. Um, but as long as they understand that the blood test is not um, recommended as a routine screening test, um, just because it used to be thought that herpes type one only affected your mouth and herpes type two only affected your genital area. But now we know either one can affect either area. So by doing the blood test, it can't distinguish how you've been exposed. All we can say is that you've been exposed. We don't have a time mark for that. Can't tell you which partner it came from. It could be have been there for years and you never have an outbreak. So the best test for herpes is if you have a, a lesion pop up in the genital area, direct, directly swabbing it. Because then you know you're getting it from a genital source and then you would culture it from there. So um, I know there's controversy about the herpes screening, but so generally that is not one of the ones that I do on a routine basis. I totally agree with that. If you look at the recommendations, it's recommended to not screen for herpes, just like Dr. Aldridge mentioned. It leads into some awkward conversations <laughs> of yeah. when did I get this? Who yeah, gave exactly. it to me? I'm like, I I can't explain all of this because we've done an unnecessary test. You weren't even having any symptoms. Right, and, exactly. And it may be a false positive. Right. I'm married. Yeah. Uh, did my spouse give this to me? I'm like, I don't I don't know. Maybe your spouse <laughs> had it and didn't even know. Like exactly. we're doing all kind of sexual trees going on and lines are just crossing. So I just stay away from it unless I see something that looks like exactly. herpes and then I'm doing a swab based upon that. But I mean, Agree. I explain to patients that and sometimes they say, I still want to have it done. And then, exactly. Okay, I'm, I don't, as long as yeah. you, as long as you counsel them, that's all you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't want to be a barrier to the answers that you want, but I always like to explain right. everything. Right. So you also mentioned trying to screen women for interpersonal uh, relationship violence. How do those conversations mm -hmm. go? So usually I just start with the generic question of do you feel safe at home? Um, and this question I like to ask with the woman by herself. So sometimes um, women bring their significant others with them to their appointments, or if it's a younger girl, she'll have her, uh, usually it's her mother, occasionally a father there. And I usually have whoever's with them step out just so I can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them so they don't feel inhibited um, to be able to be truthful in that moment. And usually that question in and of itself, they are able to kind of express any concerns that they may have. Um, and we kind of take it from there. Mm -hmm. how, how many times are you shocked by some of the things that you hear from women? I would say you, at 30 to 40% of the time, <laughs> I'm shocked. And you mm -hmm. and 
you again, you never know what people are going through because people will walk through the door with a smile on their face and their head held high. Um, but it's when you really start to dig and show concern for who they are as a person, not just physically, um, that they start to really mm-hmm. open up, which is why it's important to um, feel like you have a good relationship with your provider so that you feel comfortable and safe in that regard. Right, right. That's what I'm always afraid of, the one that I'm missing, the one I've asked those questions right. to, and they're trying to hide it inside. But what we've done in our office is put in the bathroom 1-800 numbers that women can, or if there are some men too, maybe going through something that they can reach out to, to talk to someone and maybe get some help. There's even been incidences where I've sat and talked to people and like I've had to help them find shelters or place that they can go to just so they can kind of get out those situations. I may steal that idea about putting it in the bathroom though. That's a good idea. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll go in there and it'll be like three or four tabs ripped off of there. I mean, I shared office with other people, but it's like, man, was that my patient or someone else's? But I'm glad they actually read the sign and and took the information. Mm -hmm. And also kind of reading people, reading people. Sometimes mm -hmm. their body language will tell you in and of itself that something could be going on and kind of digging a little bit deeper from there as well. Right. You can ask the the one question and then they'll start bawling and just trying to they're trying to hold everything yeah. in and then it just leads to a Pandora's box of all kind of things. Absolutely. And like, okay, we su- we were supposed to be here for your physical, but now I don't care as much about your barely high blood pressure. We can talk right. about that later. I gotta make sure that you're doing okay as a person. And so yeah. this is when it turns into the counseling session. So it may put us back a couple of minutes um, patient wise, but we're trying to make sure that that person is okay overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about mammograms and breast screening. So I already had a full episode on mammograms, but what do you do yeah. specifically for breast exams when women come to see you? So I, Always, when we're just talking, I always assess if they check their breasts at home. Um, And it is important for women to know now the guidelines have kind of shifted away from encouraging routine self-breast exams. Um, Just because, you know, breasts are naturally lumpy. Uh, It can be hard to know what to feel for. Sometimes that doing your own exam is more anxiety provoking than helpful. So um, but we do encourage you to at least stay aware of your breasts, being aware of any, if you notice any obvious changes um, that have occurred or any new symptoms, in which case that should prompt you to come in. So making sure women are um, well understood on that kind of shift in guidelines or recommendations. And then when we do their actual exam, we check in one breast at a time when they're laying flat, arm up and kind of feeling not only around the breast, but also up into their armpits where some breast tissue also lives. Your lymph nodes live there. Also checking kind of up here under your clavicle where you also have other lymph nodes um, that live that feed, feed not only your chest, but also kind of some of your GI tract as well. So some stomach and colon cancers have been found by just feeling enlarged lymph nodes Um in your upper chest. So kind of doing a full spectrum check there um, and always assessing kind of their family history of breast cancer as well, um, because that can have implications on um, when they should start their breast cancer screening um, or if they would be um, a candidate for genetic testing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very important, having those conversations with family members and knowing who had breast cancer and possibly other type of cancers. Do you often refer people to genetic counseling for them to be assessed? I definitely do. Definitely if they have a first degree relative who had um, breast cancer under the age of 50, um, especially if they have multiple family members on the same side of the family who've had um, breast cancer, any a first degree relative who's had ovarian cancer, even if it's just one family member. Of course, male breast cancer is always a red flag as well. 
Um, so a lot of the, or if they have a family member, especially if it's a first degree family member who has tested positive for um, one of the genetic tests that would predispose them to breast and ovarian cancer. But also, I usually assess for the colon cancer ones as well. So if they have a family member who maybe have been higher risk in that regard, that would be another one that I often send patients to genetics for if they're willing to to do it. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I always like to kind of do here is give patients um, a peek behind the curtain in certain aspects. So for you with your well woman exams, how much time do you have to sit and talk to patients? <laughs> in reality, <laughs> in how reality, much has your health uh, system allowed you time wise yeah. to so do te- all those things yeah, te- that you mentioned. Technically, our time slots are 15 minutes, um, but I like to make sure that my patients feel heard. Um, 15 minutes, some of those slots are double booked, though. So, <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, we don't we don't have a, a lot of time, but I never like for my patients to feel rushed. So it's, you know, uh, even though there are 15 minute time slots, I do still address all of those things. And if they have a concern that needs to be addressed as well, we, we will do that. And so what that means is that sometimes I'm running a little behind, um, mm-hmm. but hopefully patients are understanding that that is because I'm trying to make sure um, that I'm giving everyone the same full attention that each person deserves. So. Mm-hmm. Now, this may not be the standard, but that's good that you threw that out there. So people will actually know what we as physicians kind of have to go through on the back end. So like all the things that Dr. Aldridge mentioned, she has to counsel you on your pap smears, your breast exams, seeing how you're doing mentally, make sure you're in a safe household, seeing what Netflix shows you've been watching, all these different (laughs) things, all in a 15 minute time slot. And let's just say she has to do a pap smear. So that's going to be even more time to get you prepared to do that aspect and that's why sometimes she may be running behind in certain aspects. Yeah. And for me in particular, if it's my first time meeting you, I like to talk to you first and then have you get mm-hmm. undressed after. So talk to you before you've even gotten undressed. So that even adds a little bit more time. But I think it's mm-hmm. a good personable touch to meet people first if you've never met them before. So, But that's just a me thing. <laughs> So for pap smears, I've never had one, but I've done them. I know they can be uncomfortable. How do you usually ease the discomfort of the procedure for women? So uh, the best thing you can do is talk women through what you're doing. So no surprises. Um, So I always tell the woman what I'm doing before I do it so that they can already be mentally prepared, you know, even something as small as touching their thigh with my hand before I start to let them know you're going to feel my hand. You're going to feel some mm-hmm. pressure, um, particularly for the younger girls who've never had a pelvic exam before. I'll even go as far as showing them what the speculum looks like so that they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, tailoring the size of the speculum to uh, mm-hmm. the woman. So, we have the small pediatric speculums up into the, the larger, what we call grave speculums, um, and understanding the woman's anatomy um, so that you use the appropriate speculum to make it as comfortable of a, an exam as it as it could be for her. All right. Is there anything that you have to do sometimes differently for those who are part of the LGBTQ um, communities, some who've never had like penetration before? Yeah, so definitely for them, I will use the smallest speculum we have. Um, and I just go slow and I tell them, and I tell every patient this, if anything is too uncomfortable at any point, just tell me we can pause, readjust. Um, sometimes for them even, um, I will only do a bimanual. Let's say we did a pap smear, it was normal. They don't need one for three years. I may not always 
look in with the speculum. I may just feel with my finger to make sure. Um, mm -hmm. The thing to keep in mind is ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, say you don't have to do a pelvic exam with each annual. You can tailor it to your to your patient. So um, knowing that that may be a patient that doesn't have penetration, so their vaginal tissue has never been stretched out in that regard, and knowing that that may deter them from coming in for their exams. Um, so making them comfortable um, and where they feel like they can trust you and it's a safe environment. So may not always do a speculum exam, may just do a bimanual exam and maybe only with one finger instead of trying to mm -hmm. stick your whole hand in there to feel. Um, so just kind of tailoring it um, to the to the patient. Okay. I mean, that's some good information specifically on that. So you've talked about all the things that you do from your side. What are some of the things that you kind of steer away from that you say, no, I don't do that. You need to go see your PCP for. <laughs> so it's always funny to me when patients start to talk about things like, you know, I'm having knee pain or back pain or I can't see out of my left eye or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, okay, have you talked to your primary care doctor about this? And, and a lot of times women say, you are my primary care doctor. And I'm like, no, you need a, you need an actual primary care doctor, someone who's going to take care of your, you from head to toe outside of the two systems that we deal with. And so, um, Thinking again, head to toe. If you're having a headache, anything up here, heart, lungs, mm -hmm. bones, even your GI stomach. If it's not your pelvic reproductive organs or your breasts, it's likely your internist, primary care doctor. <laughs> uh, but I don't. I don't just brush them off. I let patients say what it is that they are experiencing. Um, and then if they, I redirect them to their primary care, or maybe they need to see a specialist and I'll put that referral in for them. Um, usually mm -hmm. if they don't have a primary care, then I have a pamphlet of primary cares that I, uh, often send patients to, and I give that pamphlet to them, um, before they leave. Um, just encourage, letting them know that, um, they should see both of us, um, mm -hmm. annually to make sure they're getting their full comprehensive um, exams every year. So like sometimes that. they'll ask me to check like a diabetes screen or cholesterol or thyroid. And sometimes I'll get give in and order it for them. But I always give the caveat that if something's abnormal, you need to follow up with your primary care doctor about it. Mm-hmm. So there's only so much that Dr. Aldridge can handle. She can't do it at all. So she leaves it for little old me to help manage. That's right. <laughs> that is very, <laughs> it is very important that you also have a PCP. Let's just say you come back and you have diabetes or you have high cholesterol. Right. It, that is not something that uh, Dr. Aldridge wants to sit there and manage. She has other not things me. going on. <laughs> Unless it's gestational yeah. diabetes, it's, it's not me. Right, right. So that's when you come to see me. I'm the one as a primary care physician. I'm the one who usually does certain screening exams for you, um, checking your cholesterol, making sure you're not a diabetic, having those conversations with you about colon cancer screening and other types of screenings, trying to stay up to date on those things. Um, some women, they go to their um, gynecologist for certain things, but then they come to see me and they haven't had certain labs done or certain screenings done in a long time period. It's not because the physician isn't doing it. It's just not, that's just not their niche, right? That's not that's what it. they're there to do. Like I'm there to do those certain things, you know, and maybe <laughs> and we appreciate you but... for that, <laughs> but that's what I signed up for. So certain <laughs> things like once again, kind of telling people the back end of things. So sometimes when women come to see me, they're on their cycle mm -hmm. and it's time for them to do their pap smear. So yeah. for insurance reasons, I may have to refer them to a gynecologist because they can't come back to see me just because of billing purposes. Just gotcha. so y'all know how this works out. 
So they, you may get charged if you come back to see me, but I can send in a referral to a gynecologist to do your pap smear so you won't get a bill from me coming back to do it for me. Have you heard about that too as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we have ways around, let's say we did a pap smear and it was unsatisfactory because you were on your cycle. Um, because we are the gynecologist, we have a way where if we had to repeat that, you wouldn't get charged for it. So um, mm-hmm. I definitely, definitely agree with um, referring those women. Okay. So how often do you feel like women should come to see you for a well woman exam? Should it be something that they come to see you every year or if their pap smear was normal, if they can wait three years or five years, or you like to lay eyes on them at least once a year? So I do think there is, um, and that that may vary by provider. Uh, I think some women do get confused in that they think that just because the pap smears are only every three or five years, that they only have to be seen every three to five years. But there are other things outside of the pap smear, like we just talked about, um, that we assess um, during your annual exam. So annuals are so much more than just a pap smear or your well women is so much more than just a pap smear. And so generally I recommend that women still be seen on a yearly basis um, until they are maybe about 65, um, in which case a lot of women are switching over to Medicare anyways, and Medicare only Mm -hmm. covers it every other year, uh, breast and pelvic exam every other year at that point anyways. Um, which I think is reasonable unless you are high risk um, in that regard. Um, And again, we're stopping your pap smears at that point anyways for the majority of women. Um, For women who've had a, let's say they've had a hysterectomy where they've had a total hysterectomy where their ovaries and tubes and everything was removed. Those women, um, I often also offer for them to be seen every other year, but I do encourage them to still have a breast exam every year. So whether that's uh, seeing having their primary care do it during their annual exams um, or if they still do desire to come in to see us yearly um, to have that done as well. So I suggest everyone come to see me every year just to make sure nothing happens and falls between the cracks. Me as a primary yeah. care, I always make sure your screenings are up to date because there's been one incident where I had where a woman's pap smear actually got lost. Right. Wow. You could see it was done. It was documented in a chart. And it wasn't until I looked in there and said, well, you had this done a year ago. Um, there's no results. And she said, nobody called her. How do you usually oh, wow. follow up with people regarding results from their imaging or from their labs or screening tests? So we are fortunate with Wellstar and that we have the MyChart system. Um, so if a, if a woman is signed up for my chart, um, we try to keep up, keep our, our labs up to date. If everything is normal, I usually tell women that I will send them a message through my chart. If something's abnormal, then of course your results are released immediately, automatically through my chart, but we would also uh, give that patient a call. Um, if it's abnormal, if they don't have my chart, then they will be getting a call either way. Um, even some women who have my chart, they prefer to just get called either way. So we just make note of those preferences and um, make sure that we reach out to, to that patient accordingly to make sure that they are well informed. Because um, if they do change practices or something happens and they are seen by someone else, they are well aware of, of what is going on with their bodies. They understand if they had a pap smear or just a pelvic exam. So making sure we're educating our patients um, and that they are aware of all of their results. Be aware, be informed. I want you to know yes. your results when you come in to see me, especially if you said you had a pap smear and I may not be able to see those records. I'm depending on you to know that if your pap smear was normal or abnormal. If you go to a provider that says, if we, if you don't hear anything, it's okay. Don't trust that. You need to hear something. Yes, Ask them absolutely. to call you or send you a message just to confirm 
that everything is okay because I don't want anything to happen to you. Yeah. So as we wrap up, any lasting words of wisdom that you would like to leave for women? Usually uh, the biggest piece of advice that I can give is find a provider that you are comfortable with um, because that is one that you would uh, definitely hopefully follow up with on a regular basis and feel comfortable opening up with like we, we can't address problems that we aren't aware of. So while we can do our best to um, poke and pry, uh, you know, your body and, what you have going on best. Um, so having a provider that you are comfortable with um, puts you in the best position to open up in those regards and know that we're here to advocate for you. Um, whether it's you or you and your baby or you and your future pregnancy, uh, future family. So um, when it comes to your OBGYN, she is there to take care of uh, the full spectrum of, of your women needs um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, like you said, be aware, educate yourself, make sure you're with the provider who is educating you. Um, I spend so much time with my patients because I take time to actually counsel and educate my patients to make sure they understand what is being done and why. Um, if they have a new diagnosis, what that actually means um, and what the diagnosis is and what that means for their health going forward. So just making sure um, that you advocate for yourself and you have a provider that is advocating for you as well. Advocacy is very important. And what also is important, if you have something abnormal on you, don't send us a picture. Don't send us a picture on my chart. Like I, <laughs> It hasn't happened to me, but a couple of my colleagues and women have oh. found some things. They'd be like, <laughs> they send a picture. Just, just make an appointment. <laughs> Come on in. Like some some stuff we just don't want burned in our mind. Oh, so you'll be surprised what pictures I've I've gotten. Man, man, please don't send Dr. Randy in the pictures. Y'all send it to Dr. Aldrich. She can have all those pictures. So what I always like to wrap up with is Randy's random questions. So I'm gonna ask you two random questions as we wrap okay. up. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. So question number one. What is the funniest thing that you've seen happen from a father in the room while you're delivering a baby? <laughs> the funniest is probably going to be a father who near fainted as the baby was coming out. Now, it's not funny, but it's funny. One time we had one pass completely out. And we had to take him to the emergency room. So it wasn't funny in the moment, but definitely funny after. <laughs> so if you're feeling faint, just, just, just take a seat. There's a, there's a chair there for you. Um, but it's always fun to see. It's usually the first time, the first timers. Um, it's always a fulfilling, but sometimes hilarious experience. What do you think makes them pass out? Is it just seeing the baby come through? Is it all the like gushiness or is all of the above? I think it's a combination of both. Cause you know, babies, when they come out, they don't always look normal. Some people say they look like aliens, you know, they're covered in all mm -hmm. of the, 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 uh, you will see, I'll just say the white pasty stuff, what we call vermin. And then you have the blood and the fluid and the placenta that comes out. And it's probably a combination of everything. So I usually tell the fathers to just go where the baby is. Don't focus on what's going on down here. <laughs> we don't need two patients at once. We just need the one. So. Turning into another baby and passing out. <laughs> exactly. So my last question is, what is a Delta? What is a Delta? I won't go into the chant, but you already know it. I'm sure you already know it. Uh, so, you know, I'm a part of that illustrious Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Uh, so part of that um, MPHC sorority, uh, women who focus on scholarship, service, sisterhood, 
um, a lot of the, a lot of leaders. Um, and I was fortunate to join that sorority back in the spring of 2008, um, Muro chapter, Vanderbilt University, <laughs> currently a part of the Marietta Rosborough alumni chapter. So, um, one thing I really loved about uh, Delta is that they have that service um, attitude. And so not only was I able to fulfill that in my career, but also in the community. And they provided a lot of opportunity in that regard. So in addition to gaining my sisters with that. So that's what's up. So make sure you send this to the line sisters that you have and to the alumni chapter that I'm sure you pay dues for. (laughs) Taking all my money, taking all my money. Yes. Oh yeah. I I just became a lifetime member of Kappa last year. So. Okay. Lord Jesus. Yes. Congrats. They got me. They got me. Appreciate (laughs) it. But thank you for being on call with Dr. Randy, sharing some good health information Hope all my healthy listeners me. learned a lot and making sure that they're advocates for themselves and know what's going on underneath their hood. I appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure. Another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. Yes. Did you learn something today? I learned something today. So I hope you learned something today. Even snuck in a little discussion on pap smears. Thank you, Dr. Aldridge, for being on and sharing some great information. If you're in the Atlanta area and looking for a great OB-GYN doctor, be sure to look her up. Thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with others. Share the link. Share it on YouTube. Facebook, all of that stuff. If you really enjoyed it and learned something, I'll be back next week dropping some gems on skincare. I'm going to have a dermatologist on. So be on the lookout for that. See you all next week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally. Yeah.